Welcome to the Mastering Retention Podcast, presented by UserWise, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. My name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team. This week on Mastering Retention, Tom speaks with Valentin Simeon, senior game producer and product owner at Soft Games, about catering to specific audiences, integrating social features into a game, and the profitability of modern-day web gaming. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Uh, today, or well, I'm Tom Hammond, your <laughs> uh, host, uh, co-founder of UserWise. I've been told that I should do that more often. I always forget. I, I just get so excited about the awesome guests that I have, and I dive right in. Uh, but anyways, today I am joined by uh, Valentin Simeon, uh, who comes to us uh, with a whole host of uh, exciting uh, insights um, uh, most recently at soft games. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've done a, a, lots of things, including starting your own company for a while. So, uh, oh man, this will be fun. Um, today we're going to actually get to talk a little bit about more like web and instant kind of games, which I, you know, traditionally we have a lot of like mobile folks on. So I, I have so many questions. It's going to be fun. But before we do that, you know, Valentin, I always like to ask, What's your story? Like, how did you get into games? Like, you know, working your dream job, as you will. Well, first of all, hi, Tom. Thanks uh, a lot for having me here. I've been watching your content for a while, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks again for this opportunity of having me here. I mean, it's great having this discussion with you. And I do have some uh, interesting stories to share about uh, my experience, my uh, past experience in a gaming company. But first, uh, let me answer your question. How did I get this uh, here? How, how did I get uh, in the gaming industry. Well, first of all, uh, let me start when I was in high school and I was enjoying um, a lot of games. Like I remember playing with all my, all my friends, um, Heroes of Might and Magic and uh, um, Age of Empires 2 in the network and everything. And one of the games that really drew my attention back then was a game made by the Swedish, I think, a Swedish company, which was called, uh, called uh, Hattrick. And basically there was just, just this uh, simple website where we basically were able to have your own Football team, soccer team, and then um, you manage that team. And week by week, you have these games that you're playing against other managers. And this one basically captivated me. It, for me, it kind of opened an entire new universe where you could easily play everything anywhere by simply accessing the browser. So that was uh, like uh, the start of me game, getting interested in the gaming industry. Now, in the same time, I was uh, doing some uh, developing. I was trying to become a good developer, programmer. And uh, I started actually in the um, web business, uh, websites business uh, industry. And for like five years, I worked for a company that was doing exactly this, like web services. And um, after five years uh, spent at that agency, I decided, okay, let me try once, uh, one time uh, this experience of being um, um, an entrepreneur. And I started my own company. And all of a sudden, the entire world like unraveled on me, like, okay, there were things that I never knew about that existed in this uh, entire environment, business environment of having clients, working with them, making contracts, trying to understand what they need. And uh, really quickly, actually, I failed, which it, it was a really good experience, actually, because I learned so much from it. So after one year and a half uh, of trying this, I basically took like a, a blank uh, sheet of paper and I started doing all the things, writing all the things that I went wrong. And uh, I started to think about, okay, how can I do this? How can I make it not happening again? How can I learn from all these things? Yeah. And um, back then, I started uh, reading a lot uh, of um, um, IT or gaming industry books. And one of them actually caught my attention. It was a book by, um, I think, uh, Eric, uh, I don't remember exactly the name. Uh, it was called Lean Startup. Yep. Runs. That, that was like my startup defining book that like got me into my journey. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that was incredible. And in the same time, in the Romanian market, there was this company that started getting a, a lot of attention in mass media. It was called Mavenhut. And they were doing things that no one else did. So I reached out to them. I asked them, hey, would you like to collaborate? And they were really open about it. And uh, the first day at uh, their office was 
quite incredible. And when I'm saying the first time I'm referring to the interview day, when I actually reached out to them. And uh, what they did, basically, the CTO of the company came to me, he took a pen and a paper, and he said, hey, let's play an exercise. Let's imagine that we have this situation. What would you do about it? There was nothing planned. There was nothing uh, there that um, was pre-prepared. It was just me, my mind against his mind, and a blank yeah. right of paper. <laughs> so two hours later, we forgot that we were in an interview. And the discussion <laughs> so far and so pleasant and so enjoyable that basically they made me an offer and I uh, joined them. Um, what I learned there was incredible because it was not exactly about the tools as I was expecting. It was more about the mindset of the people. And getting into the gaming industry for me was like a breaking change. From the person who was looking for the clients and the clients' need, I became a person who was looking for the players' needs, for their experience. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, all of the gut feelings that I used to put in my own business needed validation. It was not a moment when I said, okay, I know exactly what I need to do. It was complete opposite. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> what should I do about it? How to get from this stage of not knowing anything to a stage where I do understand something and I'm able to make some decisions. And uh, that entire experience basically changed my life and moved the, make, made me love the game industry. Um, short forward, uh, from a developer, I, I embraced the role of a Scrum Master. Then I also got like a you know, technical producer role. And finally, a full producing role for uh, some title of the company. And I think, I think that was all. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. So tell me a little bit about kind of instant and web games. Um, like, what's the typical audience like? Like, are they vastly different than your typical like PC console players or your, you know, mobile players, like who actually still plays what, I mean, like when I think of web games, I think of like some flash games that I would play in the computer lab after I like finished my typing exercises when I was like, you know, 10 or something. Um, so who plays web games today? That's, that's an awesome question because uh, the answer is, can be today uh, something and tomorrow can be completely different. Now, uh, all the, the entire experience I had in gaming basically was in the Facebook environment. So all the games that I worked for were uh, meant to be launched and released and uh, running live ops on the Facebook platform. Uh, the company that I worked for, the Maven Hut company, was creating uh, games uh, on uh, Facebook Canvas. So I don't know if you remember, like, uh, the times when Zynga basically spammed everyone with uh, notification when you played your little farm <laughs> oh, and yeah. all of your friends and uh, everything. Basically, that was the moment when also Mavenheart started. And uh, one thing that uh, made them uh, successful was that they identified a trend in the demographic of people who started playing the game. So uh, um, getting back to your question, at that time, uh, it was incredible to see how many women, U.S. women over 45, 55 years were starting to play on Facebook. It was like the entire platform was changing the demographic. And uh, the entire company basically built up on this trend. They started mm. targeting those users. They started creating games for those uh, demographic. And nowadays I'm looking at uh, the same platform, at the same demographic. And uh, it didn't change that much. But we are also looking at some new trends. We're talking about NFTs trends. We're talking about... Um, 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 casino games or uh, hyper casual games on a Facebook, it's more like hyper social games than hyper casual. Uh, so uh, it's also like um, we are competing with new uh, game trends, with new genres that are being more and more consumed by this audience. So the, I would say that the audience didn't change that much, but opportunities are still there and it's still big. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it, you know, is it now all? Facebook Messenger type games or, you know, do you, people still use like the regular, you know, old Facebook games? Like I, I remember playing those in, in college and this you know, smartphones weren't a thing when I was in college. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we'd all be in our lecture hall and have our computers up. Professor thought we were taking notes, but we were actually playing a bunch of games with each other. Um, you know, is that old Facebook games platform still a thing or is it pretty much all on the messenger now with like the instant games? 
No, actually, actually, the game uh, platform has changed. The Facebook game platform has changed a lot in the past five or six years. So they used to have this uh, entire uh, desktop audience where they played only on desktop. So everyone who had a Facebook account, they just opened their PC, opened the browser, logged yeah. in on uh, the Facebook account, and then played there. Uh, but uh, in the past five years, they kind of made a migration into the mobile side. So with the launch of Instant Games, they made this um, uh, gaming um, platform available also for mobile users. You don't need to have a PC anymore. You just open your uh, mobile phone, you just open the Facebook app or the Messenger app, and then you find for the game, you find the game that you're looking for and you simply play it. And being uh, this entire environment being, being in a social platform, you also get like some new abilities, some new re-engagement opportunities uh, with all of the users because you already have tools there. You already have the means of sending a message to someone or sending a gift or inviting them to join you into a final level or something. So I would say that uh, it changed a lot. And uh, let's not forget that Facebook is actually a company that is really leaning crime. They're always testing things. They're always one launching new stuff. And it's not like an industry that is static. It's always <laughs> Yeah. I mean, maybe here's a question. Like, let's say me and you want to start a company today, gaming company. Like, could it be viable for us to, say, build a 10 or a $100 million a year business building Facebook games? Or is the audience just too small to be able to support something like that? I think a better answer we have uh, looking at the market. So in the past uh, one or two years, we've seen some big companies raising some big scores in, uh, in terms of invest, invest, uh, invest, sorry, uh, investing uh, f- funds. Uh, for example, we saw Playco raising uh, $1 billion, if I remember correctly, last year. Uh, we also see uh, VRVR like getting their own framework uh, there and starting to get uh, on different platforms, not only on Facebook. We're looking at Samsung. We're looking at uh, China market where we have uh, those uh, more like uh, Asia-oriented uh, apps, messenger apps. They're also working on this, on creating their own instant games environments. So it's not like you're targeting just Facebook. You are targeting an entire new industry. This mm-hmm. instant games industry uh, has a potential of, I don't know, running, reaching 2 billion users or so, 2 billion players. Uh, you just need to unlock it, and you just need to do it with the right tools. Yeah. Probably if we start together um, a company, it will take one or two years just to understand how to build things on all of this <laughs> platform in a way that is consistent enough and uh, consistent so that we don't need to create custom experience for every single platform but more like consolidating around one single experience that is viable for all of the platforms. Yeah. So, you know, if I build in Unity um, and I do like the export to their, I think it's like the Unity WebGL or whatnot, like will that just work and run in Facebook and Instant Messenger and, and all those places? Or is there stuff I have to do on top of that basic Unity export to like get a game to work? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a really interesting question because um, I remember back in the days we had like uh, each uh, platform environment had their own SDK and their own preferred uh, environment tool like Unity or uh, HTML5 or whatever it was that. And it was a mm-hmm. hassle to actually learn all of those things and have <laughs> different teams and I don't know, like the entire work was uh, tremendous. But uh, nowadays you have this really nice tool that you can basically use to go in any platform you go you want. So let's go with Unity. Yes, Unity have their own, uh, let's call it site project where they can create really small builds with uh, whatever game you want to have there and then push it to any instant game platform. But that doesn't mean that those platforms don't have their own uh, particularities. And those particularities actually are reachable through their own APIs. So imagine on Facebook, you have this uh, possibility of sending a message to re-engage the user for a game bot. But uh, on Samsung, for example, which they are also experimenting with instant games, they don't have that yet, but they are working on app-to-user notification, push notification. Uh, so every single environment basically develops their own tools, but you as a company who wants to reach all of them, do you do have now the possibilities nowadays to actually identify one single tool that will help you reach those uh, um, expectations. Yeah, gotcha. Makes sense. Um, okay, cool. Um, I assume that if I'm building games for a platform like this like would a single player say like match three which i would say historically probably caters to a large like if you're looking at a female audience or whatnot 
probably historically it would cater to them. Like, would that game be able to do good on a platform like Facebook or is it really about like the social element? So like if you wanted to do a match three game, it would have to be more of like the PVP competitive match three where you're like playing against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, like five, four, four or five years ago, uh, I was still a developer and uh, I was discussing with my producer, the producer that was in charge of my team uh, about the game that we were working. We were working on a, I think it was a football manager uh, game on Facebook platform. And uh, one thing that we noticed is that the other games of the company were growing and they were growing virally. They were growing organically, but they were also pushed by marketing, but uh, our game uh, didn't work. And uh, I remember asking him, Hey, you know, you once, uh, I once heard this, that you just build it and they will come. And he turned back to me and said, you know, that's the biggest lie in the industry. Uh, why are you, why are you saying this? Um, because first of all, you need to go with your product where your audience is. That's the first step. So if you build a game for Facebook and you launch it on PlayStation console, it's not like you you built for that audience. You're not going to get an audience there. So whatever you are building, you are building with your demographic, your targeted audience already in mind. Uh, that's one. And second, even if you put it on the platform, you have competitors. You have so many other companies trying to put their product in uh, the first line in the front of the users, which means that you are already competing with those. So you need to find ways of pushing your product in front of your players. Even on a social platform like like Facebook, things are not that easy. So you start with doing some uh, small marketing, some Facebook pages, trying to re-engage just one or two users that you just get organically in the beginning, see where this comes. You start to do some marketing just for doing some technical uh, tests of a technical launch, see where that goes, uh, see where the numbers go. And then finally, when you decide, okay, I do have the metrics, the KPIs that I'm looking for, then finally start to do a bigger push. And uh, at the end, you end up with having a company with three, four years experience and 10 titles. And uh, of course, you now can start using those users, those players from those old titles to push the new titles. And you mm-hmm. end up basically having uh, these 10 millions of players per day that you hear about in the bigger companies. That's very cool. Um, okay, so... Let's go back to our example. We've decided to start a studio. Um, I guess I'm I'm kind of curious, and, and maybe you can give me an example here too. But I'm I'm curious, like, what's a good process for a web-based instant type game to go about figuring out like what game to make? Like, you know, everyone that works in games, everyone has you know 20, 30, 50 ideas of games that you know sound fun and cool, but Probably most of them, maybe all of them are, you know, games that shouldn't be made because they're not going to be able to scale. Um, you know, in the world of mobile, um, hyper casual has come up with a certain formula of, well, we just like make a, a mock game, 30 seconds of gameplay, get that CPI ad and, you know, understand if it's scalable or whatnot. Um, and, you know, there's, there's different varieties of how, how folks handle it. Um, but what's your, you know, ideal process for figuring out, Hey, what game should we make at our new studio? And, you know, have you ever had any examples where you were sure that this was going to be a great game and it was just a complete flop? Uh, yes. And that's, uh, that's really interesting because it makes me think of, about uh, some projects in the past that I really consider them to be like the best of the best. And then realizing later that uh, it was exactly what you said, like a flop and uh, we should have uh, stopped at some point. Uh, but uh, first, let me get back to the moment when I joined the gaming industry. As I remember, I suffered from a complete abrupt mind change, mindset right. change. Yeah. And uh, in the beginning, I actually suffered a little from the imposter syndrome, which is why I loved the, the message that you sent me uh, before our uh, meeting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I do admit uh, I did suffer a lot from it because from my side, first of all, I was coming from a totally different industry, uh, industri- uh, industry where it was more client-oriented. And now all of a sudden, I'm not looking at that. I don't have a client. I don't have anyone telling me what they need. And um, of course, I embraced what was back then like a trend. Just go with uh, fake it until you make it. But it was way out of my comfort zone. I didn't like this entire idea. So I had to reach out to different strategies to learn how to apply some different strategies in order to validate my ideas and to learn what is a good thing to go to and what is something that anyway will fail. And, of course, doing A-B tests, uh, small rollouts, trying things, even a simple survey at some point in the early stage of a product can already give you some data. 
uh, one of the um, early tests that uh, Maven had in the beginning for the validation of the idea of the concept was just a simple form with free <laughs> free questions, free answers, and the button which says play the game. And the game was not there. But what they did was track how many people click on play the game just to see what would be the interest out of all the people who actually went to the form. Um, so these kind of things basically made me be a more data-driven decision maker and basically not like so much on gut feelings. Um, and uh, I think the most important thing is that whatever tools you are going to use to validate your decision, try to do it as fast as possible. Because if you don't, if you are born, uh, if you are anyway going to fail at some point, at least fail quick and try to learn as fast as possible. And there is absolutely no failure in learning something. So uh, there was uh, uh, something that I actually learned today, a saying here in Germany, that uh, people who fail a lot, try a lot. People who don't fail usually don't do anything. So uh, try to fail as many times as you can, and this way you're going to learn as much as you can, and then later you're going to be able to take better decisions. If you ask me about a game that basically was a complete flop, uh, it was also a mistake that we did. It was not exactly the game, uh, the game's blame, but we actually were not prepared with um, the servers. So I remember it was the same uh, football manager uh, game that uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, we worked on it for six months. We focused on retention. We focused on monetization. We focused on every single small aspect of the game, but we didn't focus on uh, um, server scale-up. And what happened is that all of a sudden we got a nice, huge promotion, and a bunch of one, two million users basically entered the game for the first time in less than 24 hours. And wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a really nice and long weekend. Um, I remember back then uh, I was completely scared about the entire situation. It was the first time ever this happened to me. And the CTO came to me, you know, that's not an issue. That's actually not a problem. That's uh, We just solved the problem because we had this issue. If this wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have known that we need to scale up the servers. And the entire mindset was completely off. Like you would have expect a manager to come to you and say, what did you do? You're fired. Goodbye. Instead, they said, <laughs> I'm so happy that this happened. Now we learn. We know how to prepare servers. Next time we're going to do it properly. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I love about this industry. That's great. You talked a little bit about survey questions before like a, a game is created. So Tell me more about like a survey uh, to, to get stuff. Like, would you have like a game concept? Would you have some sort of art mock-up? Like what would be in the survey? Now, the thing is that uh, if you were to try to replicate a game mechanic that is already out there, probably you can already skip the survey idea because you already have numbers. The internet is so wide. You have so many tools out there that you can just look for them, right? But uh, when it comes to actually trying something new, something that you never noticed before, uh, I think a survey would be a really interesting thing. First of all, you just isolate uh, where you think the audience is going to be. You could come up with some gut feelings, with some gut uh, assumptions that, hey, probably this type of user are going to play this. You can also look at some data on the market about the genre of the game, at least, and then try to get some people that are already playing those kind of games uh, into your survey. And focus only on a few questions. Don't try to create a, a survey that will take you, I, I don't know, one hour to complete because you're going to churn a lot of you of uh, yeah. people, but uh, try to just focus on what is really important for you. Maybe give them a screenshot of the mechanic, ask them if they understand or not. Maybe ask them if they would like to play a PvP version of a game that is originally played only in single player. See what mm -hmm. the reaction is. And finally, just uh, see, uh, try to understand how many of them are actually going to convert in being players mm -hmm. because that's basically the basis. A lot of people are going to say, that's a cool idea. I would like to see it. But out of those, even 10%, if you are able to get in the game later, that would still be good. Yeah. So I find that survey questions can be very difficult to do well. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it's very easy to word questions in a way that lead the audience towards a certain answer and it can lead to very biased results and stuff. Um, so I, I'm curious, like what kind of survey questions would you ask? And like, do you have any examples of like an actual survey question of like, here's how I would ask it versus maybe a different way that you would ask it that might be more leading. Um, so maybe 
if I can come up with an example, uh, let's pretend I've got a screenshot of a game um, and a poorly worded question. Maybe I'm, I'm trying to like innovate on, uh, let's say like the narrative of this game or something. Um, and so I could word the question of like, do you like games that have a rich narrative? Yes or no. Most people are probably going to be inclined to say yes to that. Um, but if I word the question slightly differently of like, which of the following things is the most important to you when it comes to playing a game, uh, gameplay, narrative, audio, I don't know, whatever else you have listed in there. And then you look for the people that actually choose narrative as their top choice. That probably means that the narrative is, you know, enticing to them. I think uh, a lot of uh, directions are actually uh, biased by the um, experience, the human experience of each of the people who are going to um, complete this uh, um, survive. I think one of the things that I really like doing is more like uh, creating questions with a call to action. So imagine the situation where you have um, a small question where it says, would you, uh, would you like to play this game with someone else? And then below you have like a no and a yes like giving the user the option, the player, the option to click on one of them. So trying to give him like a call to action uh, situation uh, will help them make a better decision. Also, if they are, um, if you are able to give them some uh, uh, visual examples, like for example, put them a main menu from one game and ask them to click on one of them, immediately you're going to get a real uh, feeling of what they're actually going to do in the game. So it doesn't necessarily, you don't need to build the entire functionality, but having just some mock-ups, maybe some wireframes that will show the user what you have in mind at least and let him just do whatever he wants there, it's still a a good thing to get some data out of. I think there are some platforms out there, like for example, if I remember correctly, user testing or some others like that, which you basically just ask players to play your game or look at some wire screens or look at the wireframes or look at some... uh, um, images and then just pick up their mind what they think. As soon as you ask them specific questions, as in uh, do you like red or green, you're immediately going to influence the mind of that person into one direction or another. But if you ask them what color do you think it will be more suitable, you already open a palette of answers. So the question is do you want to have a clear answer between A and B or are you going more into an exploratory mood where you actually want to learn something new, even if you were not thinking of. That's interesting. When you're thinking of, you know, surveys and things like that, um, it's really nice to have multiple choice questions because you get like cleaner data. Um, But is there ever value in picking, say, um, like an open-ended question and like, because on the one hand, like the data-driven side, you could have like a thousand people answer these and have like clean buckets of how they group in there of what they chose and stuff. But what if you just didn't have the actual answer that people wanted to pick, so they picked something else? Um, Imagine trying to sift through like 2,000 open-ended answers to like multiple questions, it would be very difficult to kind of tie that back. So, you know, is there ever a balance of how and when you use open versus closed questions? I think it depends on each situation uh, separately because yes, you need to find that balance. It's actually your, uh, your need to find that balance in order to decide which one of data you're going to use. Being data driven doesn't mean that you need necessarily to rely on a huge amount of data. You could also just be more uh, keen to hear the quant- uh, qualitative feedback. You don't need one million of answers, but you could have five people who are actually honest about and they discuss openly about whatever question you had. So uh, I think at the end of the day, you need to kind of combine both of them. You do have some quantitative data. You also have some qualitative data and then try to get the best out of uh, both and see where is the middle. Because most of the time you're going to notice that uh, um, after several iterations, you're going to end up with the same answer from both of them. It's just a little harder to reach that moment. Uh, you're probably not going to be able to do it from the first survey or from the first try, but uh, try it three, four, five times. That's also one of the things that I'm also doing. Even if I'm doing like a simple survey, I'm not going to stick with the first version. I'm going to notice that people had some issues with 
answering to one question, and I'm going to adapt that question to make it easier for them to answer. So try doing this five, six, seven times, and at the end, you're going to end up with a bunch of data from the previous test and from the current one, and you are going to be able to actually make a better decision. Gotcha. I guess it's kind of the same with uh, the split test. When we are creating split tests, uh, one uh, common thing would be not to just simply rely on whatever you did. I think a successful test split uh, is immediately followed by another one. Mm. If you already found your answer from the split test, maybe that information was not that important. But uh, trying to go into the rabbit hole, like testing something once, discovering something, opening new opportunities, new possibilities, testing again on top of the winning distribution, and then again and again until finally you get like exactly what you wanted. I think that's uh, one of the beauty of the uh, product lifetime cycle, especially when you're talking about live ops. Yeah. Hey, that's a good segue. I actually uh, was curious, um, what does or what should live ops look like within the realm of, you know, web-based instant type games? Well, I think, uh, first of all, what you need in live ops when you're talking about uh, web-based uh, instant games, it's uh, speed. One of the most important things to react really fast. Uh, you have uh, a huge range of demographic from different countries, from different um the traditions from different cultures and every single uh, part of your demographic, every single group of the demographic uh, value have different values. So you could say that uh, in Mexico, you're going to, people are going to celebrate five uh, Cinque of Mayo. You could say that, okay, in um, Romania, for example, we're going to celebrate uh, Dracula's day or whatever. Uh, but uh, these things are really um, regional. They are not something that everyone over the world is going to enjoy. So, what you need is basically to be fast, be able to react very fast, prepare these events in time, and be able to schedule based on uh, segmentation. Um, if you are going with, in the direction of having one big event for everyone that lasts from 1st of April to 7th of April, most likely you're not going to get the best out of an event. So uh, live ops, it's like uh, doing a lot of small things and really good targeted, and you cannot do that unless you are actually able to foresee to uh, some situation to foresee, to know some uh, some stuff about your demographic and to apply really fast. And uh, of course, there are uh, companies out there who have uh, dedicated live ops teams, but uh, this is something usually that it's hard to find in the startups. And uh, instant games, again, it's an industry that just started five years ago. So we cannot say about, we cannot talk right now about uh, companies that are doing instant games on a level, I don't know, of... Microsoft or whatever. So everyone is in a startup right now. And whoever is the fastest uh, has the biggest game. Yeah. Do, you know, players in web games have a similar expectation around, you know, new content and special events and things like they're starting to in in mobile games? Um, You know, like every week on Friday, we release new levels um, you know, every Saturday there's a special competition event or, or whatever you've kind of outlined. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think uh, the expectations are uh, aligned on the same uh, path, on the same direction. Uh, sometimes it's even harder to uh, fill those expectations because uh, doing instant games, for example, on social platforms, uh, the players are always going to uh, be prone to be to have their focus moved to something else. You are playing on your mobile and you get a notification for your mom or from your uh, girlfriend, and then you switch immediately from the game outside. And what you need is to be able to re-engage that person again into the game to come back. And this time you are doing it with different events, with different uh, setups, with different call to action. Uh, sometimes even more demanding to fulfill these expectations. But when it comes to uh, daily releases, to um, um, having always an event live running, having always uh, something that is custom-made for that player, I believe that the expectations are at least the same as on uh, other gaming uh, genres or gaming industries. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Have you ever done a live ops event that just totally tanked or like the players revolted and you thought it was going to be awesome? <laughs> so I remember I remember it was one year when uh, there was a Super Bowl. I don't uh, remember exactly the team that were in the Super Bowl, but uh, we created an event and in that event um we put uh, the players to choose whatever team they would believe that uh, they will win a Super Bowl. And what happened is that um, 
70% of the people, of the players of that game, uh, decided that one uh, specific team should have won, and in reality, the other one won. And this kind of created a lot of um, love-hate situation, where everyone was kind of against the game. They were laughing about the fact that uh, not their team, not their favorite team won, but the other. And um, I think uh, we simply had to push extra effort into community management, but what we, know, we noticed is that for both situations, those who voted for their own team that won and those who voted for a team who didn't won, for both of these groups, the engagement increased. So it's also a win-win situation. Even if uh, so, uh, a lot of them didn't like the outcome of the event, um, the level of engagement increased. It feels like players, when they are putting more feeling into the game, they also are being engaged more with the with the game itself. So it was a really nice learning for us because we started building uh, events that are more close to our players. We started at that moment learning um, what are the main interests of our players. Can we do something for them that doesn't necessarily have to do with the game? So, for example, you have a solitaire game uh, that you are playing. Why not putting an event there with uh, uh, seasons, with um, spring, autumn, Winter it doesn't have to do with um, nothing. It doesn't have nothing to do with uh, the solitaire game, but it does just add some sort of a nice event. Or, um, or what about all these Valentine's Day events, Easter events? Just look for some eggs. Uh, just flip your cards and see what egg you have there. Um, again, really nice events that uh, are really resonating with uh, the audience, with your demographic. Just need to do some little research beforehand. Yeah. Do you? Or do you or have you ever like utilized like a, a Facebook group to kind of drive the community to let them kind of drive what sort of events or things they want to have or do? Yeah, it's interesting that um, uh, although we tried to do that in the, in the past, at some point we see uh, players collaborating in groups that are out of our control. So even if we have like an official group page where we put some tournaments, we put some uh, leaderboards, we put some nice events, updates and everything else, uh, those are the main uh, groups or pages that uh, are basically uh, used by players for re-engaging with the game and for um, uh, keeping up to date with all the things that we are doing. But on the other side, we see groups getting created by them in their control, discussing about the game in whatever way they want. And the players that are doing this are actually at least 25-50% more engaged with the, uh, than the rest of them. So uh, having people starting to communicate between them, having players um, discussing about the game between them and not necessarily being moderated is like a really good indication of the quality of the game and the quality of the content that the game has. It basically makes the uh, players talk about the game. Do you ever think there's a case for like user-generated content or like... (laughs) I've heard in the past of a a popular bingo game where they never really did this, but like the players almost like created their own rules around like the different rooms and who could join and the things and the timing. And they kind of like developed out this, their own system of live ops. Like every Friday, you know, this room would be going on with this and something else over. And it's like nothing that the game developer did, but the community like loved it. Like, you know, have you ever had an experience where your community's done something like that as well? So I've seen a lot of communities starting their own contests, like their own uh, ideas of, uh, hey, if you can beat me, I can give you this. Or if you can beat me, I will share with someone, with everyone else that you beat me or something. So uh, it's really interesting because on one side, you have the studio trying to keep things in control, trying to make things in their own way. And on the other side, you have uh, community communities which basically have their own mind, their own collective mind. And uh, sometimes those situations are even more interesting than what the studio can create it's by itself. And I do remember seeing um, leagues created around the football manager uh, game that I was mentioning. Uh, I remember they had their own leagues, they had their own method of uh, running the game, uh, things that we didn't even consider. At some point, they were simply looking at how many points they can do week by week by themselves without necessarily being in a league. And uh, on top of that, they created like a monthly contest. Let's see who is able to uh, reach out the biggest um, um, score in a game in the next two weeks. The winner is going to get from me, whatever. 
And yes, I did see this in the past a lot of times. And um, one thing that I noticed is that there are not so many. So if you would say that you want to make this uh, the number of users relative to the number of players, you would say that probably less than 5% are going to start doing that usually in a hyper-casual game, especially on a, hyper -se on a social platform where they already have this tool to do, uh, to use it. But um, it's rarely that I'm looking at um, other platforms like Reddit or every, any other platform similar, yeah. where they are basically, uh, I can see that they are trying to make their own gamification or whatever game. I believe everyone has... Um, the potential of gamifying their life. And part of their life is actually playing games. So why not gamifying something that's already there in a way that makes you more satisfied? And uh, at the end of the day, I think we can all learn from that because there are so many ideas there and don't, those ideas don't necessarily mean to, uh, need to come from people who are in the industry or who are professional gamers or whatever. Um, nice ideas can be found everywhere. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay. I'm curious to talk a little bit about designing games for social elements. So I've noticed that a lot of the games that you've kind of worked on, um, maybe not as much at soft games, although there is best classic solitaire, but um, especially at, at Maven Hut, there was a, a whole slew of solitaire games. Um, how do you make solitaire like a, a social type game or or can it be should it be <laughs> it's ironic that the simple name solitaire in, uh, implies the idea that you are playing alone right exactly and then again, <laughs> you are putting it on a facebook platform on a social platform and you immediately create this idea of multiplayer well actually it's uh, it's rather really interesting because um um you can have some sort of a real-time uh, pf uh, pvp um experience um, and uh, you'll immediately see the difference between having a um, single-player experience and PvP in terms of retention. When you let the users, the players, play against each other and they start to create connection between them, they are going to be easily, more easily engaged in the future to come back to the game and repeat that experience. When it comes to single-player, I think most important is to have like a um, more like a secure frame, a stable um, um, gameplay, maybe a really good content or really good uh, live ops, but uh, live ops strategy. But when it comes to PvP, I think there is nothing that can replace that type of retention, the one where you really want to play with your friends. And uh, yes, we ha I do have a, a long list of uh, solitaire games played there. And uh, I remember one of the things that we like to brag about was that we we create solitaire games with a twist. Every single game of uh, that list of, game, of solitaire games had something different. It was either a knockout, it was either a PvP, real-time PvP with uh, someone that you could challenge, like a real friend of yours, or uh, it was a simple tournament game. Every single one made use, out of, uh, made use of uh, this PvP experience, and all of them had actually really good retention because of that. Mm. That's very fascinating. Are there other games that are sort of like Solitaire that might make sense with a similar social twist to it? I think uh, it is possible to move mostly all of the games that we have. We probably don't figure out how many games we can move there. But I see any kind of game being moved into a PvP uh, situation. If you are, uh, let's say, open-minded enough to find that thing that can make it uh, PvP, um, even if you are not able to set up some uh, real-life PvP experiences, you can still have that turn-based strategy. Or if you remember back in the days, we had these uh, uh, races uh, games where we have like a shadow. So basically I'm playing, I'm running a race, and uh, then when I, the, my friend is running the race, he's also see my shadow behind him or in front of him. So PvP, I believe it can be made out of everything. You just need uh, a little imagination and, uh, I don't know, some courage to, to try it. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, and here's a question, maybe. Um, there was a company that was acquired. It was either by Embracer or uh, the other one that, you know, they're buying everyone all the time. Um, and uh, they were mostly based in the uh, kind of Arabic countries and their entire app, like all it was 
was a whole bunch of different games that were kind of designed for, for playing together. And mostly it was like card games. Um, so, you know, like in the U S where I'm at, you know, popular card games would be like hearts or, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing uh, spades. There's a whole, whole slew of like games that you play, you know, usually it's like four, four people together. Um, and so their, their entire app was basically like you play these games that you grew up playing with like live with other players at the same time, not just bots and stuff. Um, you know, would that kind of a thing work well as a social element? Like historically my experience with like, Facebook games would be like words with friends where it's an asynchronous world. Whereas like if I'm playing hearts, even if I want to play against someone, like we both kind of need to be at the table playing until the game is at least done. Right. Um, so would those kind of games work well? Um, I believe there is no uh, exact formula of making a game working in that uh, situation. I think uh, most of the time the companies probably are not able to put a game on um, I don't know, in top 10 when it comes to PvP or uh, social experience, but not because of the game itself, but more like because they were not able to grow the game in terms of uh, finding the demographic fit, finding the way of re-engaging the user, the players in a certain way. Um, I do believe that uh, it kind of almost all of the games can grow if you put enough resources and time into it. And that's actually one of the biggest issues in the, uh, in the gaming industry. You don't necessarily have, um, actually, you never have uh, unlimited resources. You need to be, get to a point as fast as possible and then be able to grow it even further. But if you already consume all your resources, let's say in six months, um, I think that's the moment when you basically need to pivot and you are going to, uh, everyone is going to pivot in a different direction. My guess is that if you let's say one of the games that didn't work, let's take one and put 10 years uh, uh, in it and, uh, I don't know, a team of 1,000 people. Do you think it's going to be successful? I do have this feeling that it's going to reach success at some point. It's not <laughs> going to be level, profitable. Yeah. yeah, it's not going to be profitable, <laughs> but it's going to be a success, right? Uh, yeah. It also define, uh, depends on how you define success. If you define mm. the success in terms of revenue and return of investment, not all of the games are going to reach that, that's for sure. Actually, even 2% of them, if they are able to reach that point, I think uh, it's already a lot. Yeah. Okay. So in the last little bit of time, I want to talk about an important topic, which is profitability or, or monetization. So how should you monetize, you know, web-based or instant type games? Like are in-app purchases a thing? Is it all rewarded videos? Is it all interstitials, mix of the three? Tell me about monetization. That's a tough question because uh, there is no right answer. Um, most of the time what I'm seeing is a combination of both of them. So I'm not talking about uh, titles, games that are only, line, only on ads or only on in-app purchase. I think the actual the correct answer is somewhere in the middle. How much from each of them is something that we need to test out. But uh, there are people who are not going to spend not even one single cent, which is completely natural. We already have the tools out there that we can use. So payments online, it's something that everyone can do these days. Uh, so that's not a blocker anymore. It used to be, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you don't have that many conversions. If in a normal free-to-play uh, game, if you get 2% out of your total players being uh, payers, that's still a good thing. But nowadays, you even, saw, you even see less than that. And uh, the way to deal with that is basically getting into a different uh, uh, business model, uh, monetization model, and that is with ads. So you kind of try to combine both of them and see where you put more focus on. Sometimes you get with a, a game that gets monetized 70% with ads, 30% with in-app purchases. Uh, sometimes you see more on in-app purchases side and I know, 10, 15% in ads. Uh, also depends on uh, the economy that you are building. I think one of the things that I learned in the past was that if you start a game, thinking about monetization, how to do that needs to be one of the first steps because this will define your entire strategy when it comes to gameplay, to game e uh, economy, uh, sinks, um, inflation, inflation and everything else. Uh, imagine that you have these games where you have a power-up and you get a power-up if you watch a rewarded ad. How many power-ups a user, a player can put into the game in one single session? how many sessions per day, and uh, at the end of the day, how many power-ups are getting consumed, and how much uh, revenue do we make from ads, from those ads. 
And on the opposite end, you have a player who prefers to spend $5 and uh, get those five power-ups right away. Um, depends also on the country. Depends on uh, the ad's uh, inventory. Depends on the ECPM a lot. Like the ECPM actually has a real big thing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's that's another interesting thing that you need to consider. Because um, monetizing only ads, usually you are not in complete control. You still depends on inventory. You still, you still depends right. on provider. And uh, you're not going to always be able to uh, provide a return of investment. But when it comes to in-app purchases, which is, by the way, my preferred, preferred model, you are more mm-hmm. in control because you know what is your conversion rate. You can work on improving that. You know your prices. You can work on segmentation, on trying to uh, make the prices more affordable or, or the product more valuable for the players. So it gives you more control and more testing opportunities. And at the end of the day, also predictability. And you are able to forecast what will happen. Hey, we have Christmas in one month. How many special offers should we prepare? And how many events should we push so that we can, I know, increase the return of uh, investment 50% on top of what we are usually getting? Well, this is amazing. Well, Valentin, I could probably keep going for another hour, but I know we're pretty much at time here. So I do have one final question for you because we are in the Mastering Retention Podcast. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to keep your players playing for longer? I think uh, one of the most important things that I can um, give as an advice for everyone uh, out there building games first and then for the players is uh, to focus and really focus on one single thing. Don't try to focus on multiple things or, uh, in the same time because doing so, you're not going to be able to improve all of them at the same time. Uh, I remember um, that uh, there was a moment when we tried to increase the retention of one of our games. And uh, for one sprint, which for, our, for us was uh, two weeks, we basically pushed uh, for different mechanics, targeting second-day retention, seventh-day retention, 30-days retention. And we basically created small functionalities for each of them. And at the end of the sprint, we realized we didn't move the needle that much. Um, so we basically gathered around the, the table and we thought, okay, what would be a good strategy? And we say, and we realized that uh, we should try to focus only on one of day. Let's work only with day one. Let's focus completely on day one. Build everything that we can think of just for day one. We did that for one sprint, and guess what? Of course, day seven, day 30 uh, reached uh, higher levels just because we fixed that day one retention. Yep. And then, of course, we could move into the next sprint, focus on day three retention to see what else we can do that. I believe, again, that PvP uh, can increase a lot of retention, and not necessarily PvP, more like the social experience, yeah. where you know that you're not the only one playing the game. Then again, uh, this is not something that it's easy to build because you do need some sort of <laughs> servers behind, some sort of uh, uh, preparations. So um, even if you can at least give uh, uh, the idea to the player that it can be a multiplayer experience if you invite your friend and you can at least see your friend's leaderboard, your friend's score on your leaderboard, this will anyway a little increase uh, the retention. Mm. So try to be focused as much as possible on one thing. Don't try to improve all of them in one single phase and uh, also give a chance to PvP. Love it. Well, thank you so much. I hope to uh, maybe have you back on the show sometime. This has been great. Thank you, Tom. It's been great as well. Hope to see you again. All right. Cheers. Cheers.